CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. And it's a really special time. Uh, we, The last couple of shows, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of Stephen King's The Shining miniseries. And this episode, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. So we'll be back with the stars, Machen Amick and Brian Krause, right after this. This episode of Postmortem is brought to you in part by Full Moon Features and their new film, Attack of the 50-Foot Cam Girl. From cult movie icon Jim Wynorski, director of Chopping Mall, comes the biggest sci-fi comedy of the year. Run for your lives because Attack of the 50-Foot Cam Girl is about to arrive. And she's going to crush anything or anyone who stands in her way. Attack of the 50-Foot Cam Girl premieres exclusively on Full Moon Features and Full Moon's Amazon Prime channel on April 29th. Don't miss it. Guys, it's so great to see you. 30 years. I know. Neither of you look old enough for it to have been 10 years. (laughs) Delighting. We're not... We're not old enough, are we, Brian? No, you're absolutely. no, no, not at all. Oh, you kids today. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's amazing that when any movie or TV show is still remembered at all 30 years later, and it seems to me that Sleepwalkers has only gotten more popular over the years. You guys go to festivals and, and conventions occasionally. And is that something that comes up when you're signing autographs and talking to the fans? Yes. Uh, it's, I was just in Detroit this last weekend. Uh, they're, they're at, with the Juggalos, if you know what those are, they're, it's a no. horror, horror rap uh, out of oh. Detroit. And these guys are all gigantic, human beings and they all were like coming up to the table like oh man and i'm like you know looking at these huge guys and they just you know they kind of fanboy out it was, it was <laughs> i couldn't believe it that's so great how about yeah. you Majin? yeah definitely i have um i have my twin peaks fans that are die hard yeah very 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 particular fans I'm going to have a ton of Sleepwalker fans that Sleepwalker fans also seem to go with the Witches of East End fans. Right. Because they're all in the good little sci-fi, you know. And big time Riverdale. And then Riverdale. And then River, but Riverdale is a whole nother, whole nother, well, 
there's some older so like the parents of the Riverdale fans that watch <laughs> with their kids they're all Twin Peaks fans or or Sleepwalker or you know th- things of that era yeah and then we've got the, and then we've got <laughs> and then we got the kids that you know that's all these kids today these yeah, kids yeah. they only know Riverdale so. yeah well I'm, I'm curious to know what your reaction was when you got the the script in the mail uh, from your agents, Machen, this was the first original screenplay by Stephen King, not based on a previous story or book. So, and it's also a peculiar uh, screenplay and a peculiar movie. What was your reaction when you first got it delivered to you? Um. So when I got it and I read it, I. I really like my brain went into, oh, so this is going to be like a vampire movie, mm-hmm. right? Because I was I was like the sexuality between the mother and the son, the life sucking, you know, and I just was like, oh, this is going to be like vampire. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I like vampires. And what was really surprising, literally until until I saw it screened, I didn't realize the the sense of humor it had, and the fun <laughs> that it had with itself. Which was really like surprising and and a really nice treat to see after the fact. Well, that's a, a credit to you guys because the cast, I admit with my encouragement, played it straight and was so committed to the roles. Nobody was playing it with a wink. Nobody yeah. was playing it with a nudge. It was really something that was, uh, you know, played straight. And it just goes places that other movies at the time did not go and other movies since for that matter. True. Yeah. So Brian, you were actually under contract to Columbia. This is something that you had to be one of the last actors under a studio contract when we were casting for sleepwalkers. And I always say casting for a young man in 1992 was a lot more difficult than casting for a young woman because most guys get into acting to get laid and <laughs> most young women. <laughs> but you were under contract and Columbia asked me to, to read you and you had just done Return to the Blue Lagoon. So you came in and it was great. I mean, your attitude was great. You had just done this movie that had done well for them. They they liked you and trusted you. And you seemed to embrace the inner Charles Brady in this. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I mean, I grew up, yeah, Stephen King was everything. And, uh, you know, I was always scared of horror and thrillers and all of it. Uh, so the idea of, Charles was, you know, it was, it was one of the bigger roles I had even read for at the time, I think. So, uh, you know, it was that cross between you're really just a nice guy the whole way. So I, I, I didn't, I don't know. And, you know, the night before I came in the last night, there was, we had these cats. I was on the third floor in this apartment in North Hollywood and <laughs> I'd never heard cats in my life. And the night before I came in, there was, cats like literally screeching like out my window like like i they were mating like out my window it was oddest scariest weirdest thing and an omen at all yeah and i was like oh it's it's meant to be (laughs) so majin you had been on a on a hit tv series you were on twin peaks that's where i saw you our casting director lynn kressel this was the first time i worked with her 
And I did almost all of my other Stephen King stuff with her, great casting director based in New York, but also worked out of LA. Um, so tell me the difference. You were on a TV series where people knew you as that character, but this was something quite different, although they both seem to be the nice girl anyway. Yeah, uh, and, I know, and you right? do you do the nice girl really well. <laughs> I think Sleepwalkers might have been the last good girl role I did for a bit because right after Sleepwalkers, uh, then I went on to a show called Central Park West. Right. And but you had done a, Nick's movie before that, I think. Did I? Oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, Dream Lover. Yeah, Dream, yeah, I think Lover, Dream was Lover was the... right after. Yeah, Nick, Nick is in. That's true. I think that's probably the thing that really like turned the turn the tides. I was a true femme fatale in that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, it was just fun and exciting. And I remember you made a comment at one point, you said that when you were reading different people, you said you thought because I had just come off of a show, I had like, I was more comfortable in the room. I was just kind of like, yeah. And I always remember that as like, oh, that was a nice compliment. <laughs> yeah, well, it's really great when when you're reading some somebody for a part. Uh, and I think we read you uh, or did we just meet you I, because you've been on the show? Oh, maybe. Maybe. I don't remember. It might have just been a meeting. But yeah, when when you meet with somebody and Brian, you had just done Return to the Blue Lagoon for Columbia. You knew the executives. You knew the people at the studio. And when you can be comfortable with them and nobody's trying to overtly impress you in, yeah like you desperately know. impress you yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's really a tough time because as a director when you're in a room reading people and the like you try and keep your game face on you try and encourage everybody as much as possible and help them to believe that they did a good job and you know <laughs> usually they do but yeah it's, it's not always the case um but you guys were so comfortable with it and everybody fit together. There was a big deal about, would you have charisma together? Would you share charisma as budding young romantic lead? Yeah. Cause you didn't have the opportunity to chemistry read us together. Right. So oh, you just were no. kind of like, let's hope they get along. Yeah. <laughs> let's hope but, that there were sparks on screen. Yeah. But you know, you both had similar personalities. You were very warm and outgoing and, and game, you know, ready to do everything. But I want to jump back to the bad girl thing and dream lover because you were known as the good girl. And yeah. in this, you were definitely the good girl in Sleepwalkers. And I was very protective of that and protective of you because I believed you uh, were so convincing in that role that you were that way in real life. Yeah. And so we have a scene in the bathtub, very cautious to make sure there was nothing. That, and then in Dream Lover, there's lots of nudity. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I know. It yeah. Wow, things really turned around. Here. Yeah, I, I was I was in the in the bath with all the bubbles and then bam, out of the bath, out of the bath in the next movie. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the, doing that kind of thing. And Brian, we'll talk to you about it, too, because you have a nude scene with Alice Krieger in Sleepwalkers. But what was it like? Was it freeing when you did Dream Lover or were, was it nerve wracking or how did you approach? Uh, that? Well, I I. I grew, I was raised with, with really no, no, you know, completely no inhibitions whatsoever. So, um, but then I also was a dancer from a young age, very, very young. And then I went into modeling an artist from the beginning. So, 
you know, to me, it was like the nude body is the nude body. It really isn't that big a deal. The only thing that I was, was careful of is the gratuitous nudity or the gratuitous sex. And I, I wasn't down to do that, you know? So there were a lot of roles that I got offered where there were some pretty nasty attachments to taking that role. And I was like, Mm. yeah, no, not interested. I'll go to the next one. Yeah. Um, It's about playing a part, not showing off. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Nick Kazan and I had lots of conversations about it and why was it important? It was symbolic for that part of the relationship and this and that. And so I just protected myself and um, I just had a, a, a deal that I would see his director's cut of what he wanted to put together. And if I felt comfortable, I would sign off. So I remember going down, seeing the edit um, and signing off on it. Now, what I didn't know was the producers can do their own cut Uh, and they can take all the footage that you filmed and put together their little extra 12 minute, uh, not rated version. And I was like, oh, okay. Note to self. Yeah. I gotta make sure that it's only the director's cut, you know, and and not that. So I got I got right. burned a little bit, but we didn't film anything that I was uncomfortable filming. It's just kind of it was it was definitely gratuitous in that version. So I don't appreciate that. Yeah, it, it can it can be such. You know, you want to hire actors who are comfortable with what's required in the script. Yeah, uh, and there are people whom I've read who are not comfortable with that, but they pretend that they are because they want to get the part. And it's, I don't want anybody to feel debased. I don't want anybody to feel embarrassed. I want them to be comfortable or they're not going to do their best work. Yeah. So so Brian, in your case, there was nudity in Return to the Blue Lagoon um, and in this, but you still had some trepidation about the love scene with, with Alice, which was fairly explicit. And because of your bare butt going up and down, we had to make cuts to avoid an NC-17. <laughs> really? You had to avoid the motion of it? Yeah. Wow. It was all intended to be one long shot from the mirror down to the floor, across the bed, and then revealing in yeah. the mirror of the two sleepwalker creatures. But I covered myself just in case by shooting closer angles, looking down on Alice, Alice's face and the like. But I know, Brian, you were a little, you had some trepidation about that. You know, I didn't grow up in a, as free a family for sure. I, my parents, you know, very, uh, very conservative. Um, well, you're from Orange County, California. Yeah. So and, you know, I, I played water polo high school and I, I was that guy that I'd come over to the edge of the pool in my speedo and throw my towel off and dive in the water like nobody look at me <laughs> uh, and then I did the blue lagoon and it was like wow okay everybody's seeing everything and um you know and then went straight into this and it was you know it's kind of thrown to the fire of Hollywood a little bit and on the guy side of things which is never as uh, that is, you know, what women have to show sometimes. So yeah. I was like, okay, if the girls are doing it, then it made it. But, you know, yeah, I was young and naive and nervous. And, you know, I I think that's, I'm, I'm nervous talking about it. <laughs> but, look, I, I can feel your blush radiating. Yeah. <laughs> Alice is beautiful. And, you know, you have me naked up against her. It's, uh, you I'm young stay focused. and inexperienced. <laughs> yes, very, stay focused. That's right. I'm like, uh-huh. okay. <laughs> I yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's also great. It's also great that it was Alice because she was so comfortable with it and helped make you comfortable with it. It felt like to me, you know, obviously we cleared the set and all of that that you want to do to protect, but still you've got the cameraman and the focus puller and all of that. So how did that scene go for you? Uh, well, we, Alice and I had talked about it previously and then you and I had, and everybody made us feel very comfortable that nothing, we weren't shooting a porno and, you know, we were on, Right. The big studio lot and Stephen King. And it's like you kind of knowing that, all right, this isn't a, we're not shooting porn. And uh, that's for sure. So that was comfortable. But, you know, I was pacing the room. I remember just back and forth. And, back, like, and Alice looks up, she, she's on the bed, like, you know, like, I'm like <laughs> well, how are you so comfortable? And, and I, she looks at me and she goes, Brian. I'm like, yes. She goes, stop. What is, why are you so nervous? Come here. And she reached her hand out to me. And I'm just like, oh, God. like this is this is happening and she grabbed my hand and i said listen i don't want to be so nervous i don't want to get excited and she squeezed my hand and looked in my eyes and she said it's okay i want you to like i'm here for you and i'm like oh my gosh i you know and i think i lost it right there um <laughs> but but knowing that she was comfortable and you know she was kind of she's the pro and you know, she kind of took the reins on, on, you know, she wasn't going to allow anything to happen that, you know, yeah. she just, she just, I think she took the reins there. And, you know, I've kind of had to do that a few times since, um, you know, filming with people that haven't had any sort of experience in that. And, you know, you try and make the other actor comfortable. And, and I think I took a lot of what and how you and her made me feel and kind of carried that on into other projects for sure. Well, but Matt, I, I still tell the story of that day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it's a wonderful story to be told. Oh, man. <laughs> you are blushing. <laughs> Those of you who are only listening, which is everybody, won't see Brian Krause in red. <laughs> it's the lighting. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So, Machen, were you brought up in the arts then? You were a dancer, you were a model, you're an actress, um, you're a writer, you're a director, and we'll get into that as well. Where did that all come from? Where did it begin? Uh, my dad was a musician. So he, uh, he had the Bobby McGee band, traveling, um, traveling musician. He, he traveled all <clears throat> kinds of places. He, he did the military route. So I would go visit him in Guam or Alaska or wow. all these interesting places. So I was raised with music around me, um, tinkering on the piano myself. I learned how to play the upright bass. Wow. Um, and uh, dad's dream was that I was going to join his band one day. Nice. Uh, but yeah, so I had music in me right away. And then I, and then I got into painting. I loved oil painting uh, and then I got into dance and I, th that I thought like my calling was, I was going to be a prima ballerina right. and, uh, ended up going to New York. I had a stepsister that was a really accomplished ballerina <laughs> and I saw how grueling it was. And I saw you had to have a certain body type that I was just never going to have. <laughs> and so I kind of like, I kind of, I was like, well, okay, maybe that's not my calling. And then about that time, I had sort of followed my best friend into theater class in high school. And um, I just kind of did it because she was doing it. 
And I remember then, you know, I, I liked it and enjoyed it. And she, she actually taught us um, from the John F. Kennedy School of Performing Arts wow. material. So we had a very high level um, training and education, even, you know, in, in Reno, Nevada, in high school yeah. in Reno, Nevada. Um, but it really was, I remember the moment that I was doing the play Juvie and I played a character that had um, hit a little kid when she was driving. And that was what put her into juvie. And so the way that they sort of staged it was, you know, different people would step forward and tell their story. And so I had stepped through the, the jail bars out into the, onto stage. And I had rehearsed it a bunch of times, you know, and all this, but for some reason on show night, and I stepped out front and the spotlight was on, on my face, the audience melted away. And I went into some weird tunnel and performed this thing. And then at the end, I sort of came out of that tunnel and went back into where I was supposed to go into the stage. And I was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> How that did I do that? <laughs> amazing. And so then I think I've been chasing that feeling ever since. And I get it every once in a while. I get challenged with material or there, there's an environment on set that kind of puts us in that space. And it's really it's, it's really amazing. It's really magical. And so I, I enjoy it. Now there's a lot of about the rest of what we do, which we all have to navigate. Right. And you have to like, try to keep your, as much as your artistic spirit alive in a pretty cutthroat business. But, um, that was the moment that I was like, Oh, that's what I'm going to do. And so, and I had already like loved, like I would go to movies. I would go to two, three movies in a day. On the, on the weekends and just get lost in the theater. What were so the I movies had this that inspired you like that? Um, I'm trying to remember like what for the eight, like about 14 is when this little plan was brewing in my brain. Mm-hmm. But movies like um, Out of Africa and <sighs> Francis and um, these just like really beautiful you get lost in the performance of it and the yeah. There's a depth of character of there, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and a, and a touch of exoticness too. Yeah, the locations and the romance and all of that. Interesting. One of my favorite films was the French version of La Femme Nikita, the original. Yeah. Just these very interesting, complicated women. I don't think that's the only thing I was attracted to, but obviously I was attracted to that because it was. It, it showed women in a very interesting light. I, you know, I enjoyed other things like comedies and this and that, but I always enjoyed a really deep female character. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of your musical past, the, the opening scene in the theater with you uh, is kind of the first musical scene I'd ever directed. And there's such a, a loose joy about that whole scene that you bring to it that it's so sweet. And the way you two meet, you know, Tanya yeah. and Charles meeting together. Tell me about that because really nobody choreographed it. It was you bringing just all jamming. of those steps to it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just remember it was such a cool shot because you came, you had it coming down off what a cherry. Was it a cherry picker? No, we had a crane and oh, the had a steady okay. cam operator who stepped off of the steady cam. Right, because I remember the they stepped off. So I didn't know if that was the, a cherry picker or not. But anyway, and then, uh, yeah, stepped off smoothly into the, it was such a great shot. But um, 
yeah, that was just, that was fun to do, but that was right up my alley. It was just, you know, jamming the music and, and having fun. And um, yeah. And then the cute, the cute meeting of the cute yeah. boy in town. That's right. <laughs> so Brian, the, the great thing about Charles Brady is that mothers like him too. <laughs> you know, he's, he's good with the parents and uh but the, when you're first introduced to Tanya, well, first of all, when you're first introduced, you're carving her initial into your bicep. <laughs> That's so, not creepy at all. No, nah, here's, here's all. the <laughs> handsome star of the football team at, uh, at this <laughs> high school. But um, the sense of menace is hidden under this Brian Krause, who's this really outgoing, nice, friendly, lovable guy. So tell me about your approach to that. You know, I mean, I guess I, it kind of, like Major said, one of my first roles ever was playing uh, the devil uh, on stage and, you know, getting the reaction, people reacted to it. And, you know, the different movies you watch of, of vampires and stuff like that. And it always seemed like the nice guy was the most evil. Um, right. You know, and, and without giving it away, you're you're always the you're just the nicest guy. I mean, in some of the scariest movies we've ever watched, you know, the the priest, the whatever it is, he's just the nicest guy, <laughs> which is always so scary and and scary. Charming, evil is charming. charming. Yeah, and well, you know, I, I through your direction of just you know keeping it that's who Charles is in this whole movie. I mean, I, I don't know that he's ever out for blood in his own right. Uh, and obviously he falls in love for real with Tanya, which kind of leads to his demise. So, so I don't know that there was ever a moment in his mind per se, where he was out together. Right. Um, I think, I think even though through the ruse, he, he winds up falling in love with her. And so and I, I think keeping it real like well, that. Right. He was conflicted. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Because the first thing is he wants to suck out your virgin life source to feed to his mother sexually. Yeah. Uh, and so that's Rude. rule number one. As you yeah. do. Did you find somebody? You know. Yeah. As one would. Yes. As one does. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the conflict is definitely there because you do feel an attachment to this human, uh, someone you've not been allowed to have relations with through a very long and growing lengthy life. Yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, the, the innocence and sweetness that Machen played and the character, it's, it's, you know, I think that's kind of what attracted Charles to Tanya is like, you know, the purity of it. And, you know, I, in my mind, I guess I was like, okay, we've, we've had other virgins that, you know, just perhaps were a bit vacant and I didn't feel anything for really, uh, I could kind of trick, but, you know, here's this Tanya with all this charisma and sweetness and brightness and future. And, and I think that's what got Charles really at the end of the day is like, man, this is, how can I kill her? She's, look, it's, <laughs> it's Tanya. <laughs> how could anyone kill Machen Amick? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and could anyone have did. evil designs on Machen Amick? <laughs> We should do a Sleepwalkers reunion, Charles and Tanya 
you know, ran away to get together the alternate right. universe. I want to meet yeah. their kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Half sleepwalkers. <laughs> so Brian, how did it start for you? You said you uh, did work on stage in your youth. Um, were your parents into the arts or how did that come about? No, my parents weren't in the arts. Uh, you know, it was all sports for me growing up and, uh, you know, played music. I played you know, saxophone and what have you in middle school. And then wait, saxophone I, and what have you. And what have I, you, you? I know. played everything, like whatever I could do to get away from. I had the bully in middle school for two years and I had to avoid this guy. And the only way I had to go to the other side of the school and of where his class was so I could get out and ride my bike home with my sacks on my bike through the <laughs> woods. I had to find classes that were on the other side of the school. And wow. so I, I had like band, jazz band, marching band, and they wouldn't let me take another band class to get out of my foods class where his best friend was. Oh. And the only class left was this drama. And, uh, but it had a back door that I could oh, park geez. my bike and literally run across the street and get away. Wow. And, so yeah. Nathan, wouldn't you imagine that he was in on the football team rather than in jazz band? Well, I think you were both, right? Weren't you? You were in sports I mean, as well? I was kind I was both, yeah, all the way through high school. And it was yeah. it was kind of that weird thing. It's like, you know, I could get along with kids when we were playing sports. And because I was a pretty good athlete, I guess. And you know, it was one thing when we were playing, but then once we got off the field and social aspect came about i was inept i was tiny and i didn't i didn't fit in uh and it wasn't until i got into drama as a you know a way to escape the bully that you know i felt acceptance uh, you know i was people laughed they liked it they're like oh you need to do this in high school and and i did and that that's when my mom who was my mom was a huge television movie fan. She had all the covers of the uh, uh, TV guide she had saved wow. for 30 years that were oh on God. her bed, like, and pictures of Tom Selleck. And I mean, she watched everything. And <laughs> wow. we watched, you know, Masterpiece Theater on the weekend and all these different things. And, you know, my mom was a big movie buff, um, film and television. And, you know, I, I didn't really think much of it till later but uh she kind of helped prod me into finding an acting class in high school outside of drama uh and i was like i don't want to do that like everybody you know in the field's yeah. gonna think i'm you know I, it, was, it was weird <laughs> between being an athlete and then being this drama geek it's like i never really fit in anywhere and it, it, it was you know it wasn't until i said you know i'm gonna do this for life um you know and everybody laughs and you know, I, I think I really only found acceptance in people who in our industry, you know, people that have kind of oh. the same goals and dreams and aspirations. And we're all kind of, you know, the lost children that come together in a way. And yeah, uh, we're the we're the we're the gypsies. <laughs> we're the. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so as much as I tried to fit into this athletic world, I just. You know, I, I, I could play that jerk jock really well. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are 30 years later, both of your careers still going strong as hell um, and maturing, you know, not just in the roles, but in what you're doing as well. Machen, you started directing on Riverdale and you just finished directing your first feature film. So tell me about that 
evolution? Because you always struck me as somebody who would become a writer or director, even when we were shooting sleepwalkers. Really? Yeah. I think my, my, I definitely, um, when I read anytime I would read a script, I could see the whole thing in my head. Like I saw the film in my head and, um, it wasn't until, you know, maybe 10 years ago or something when I started talking about, like, I actually wanted to step behind the camera and I just sort of assumed all actors wanted to do that. And there's so many <laughs> actors that were like, no. <laughs> and I was like, really? It's a much harder job, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and a lot of times they just, you know, they compartmentalize really well and they just know their craft really well. They know what they bring to it. And they just kind of like, kind of don't care. But I was always fascinated about how you, as directors, how you put this together, how you orchestrated it, how all the different crew members and how, you know, how they were doing their, their job. And I was always fascinated in that. So it always, and I always wanted to do it, but I think um, there really wasn't uh, a, uh, like an opportunity in a way. It really has just been recently that they've been purposely opening the door for diversity so yeah. that was letting females in and letting, you know, uh, different ethnicities in and, you know, different um, uh, opinions and views and different ways to tell stories. So I definitely benefited from that movement for sure. And, and so always, have movies. And so have movies. Yeah, yeah it's true. And I, but I think the thing that really like kind of kicked me in the butt was, um, well, it's actually, I think I, I have to give my daughter Mina credit. So she's a beautiful singer, songwriter. Mm. And she was in the middle of like pre-production on a music video. And she ended up not, it wasn't, she wasn't vibing. She wasn't vibing with the director oh, and the production team and stuff. And so she was talking to my husband, David, her dad, and she was, you know, venting and he goes, well, your mom's been wanting to direct forever. Why don't you just have her direct it? And so she calls me up and says, Hey mom, you know, do you want to do this? And I was like, I would love to do it. I love music videos. Like I'm, I'm a 1980s kid. I, grew, <laughs> I was born in 1970. So I'm in my teens. I'm in my teens when MTV hits. Right. So I'm right. like the perfect, um, lover of music videos that tell stories. Well, plus your background in film and music and, music, and dance yeah. and all of that together. I mean, so I ended up directing her video and it was a really great experience. I brought together a lot of people. And then I started to realize the worth of what I had just in the industry and the different people I had met along the way that were super talented. And um, so I started saying like, oh, I can really like pool good people together to do this. And so many people came together and supported me. So that's what started it. Um, but then I also, at the same time, not too long after that, uh, ment mental illness hit our family. Our son uh, started having struggles in his freshman year of college. Right. And it ended up being a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but it took a long time to get. And it's still um, uh, a journey. But that really sparked for me to sit down and start writing our story. And it was just a very cathartic thing for me to do. And because I had so much, so many years in the, the film industry and television industry, the way that I was able to express it was in script form. Cause that's what I knew. And so I just started writing the script and wanted to share the story. And that sparked being a mental health advocate as well and sharing our story. 
So it gave me like a real drive and purpose to stop fucking around and get behind the camera and start making my own, my own material and start telling my own stories, you know? So that, that really, um, it just wasn't, it wasn't an excuse anymore. It needed to be done. Right. So since then, uh, I, I produced and directed a docu-series on, on mental health, um, some other music videos, and then have been able to direct uh, episodes of Riverdale. And then I had this opportunity to direct this feature film. And the feature film ends up having a mental health story behind it as well. So it was right up my alley. And this is Reminisce. And is it an independent feature? Yeah, it's an independent feature. And um, we'll start hitting the festivals in the fall. You're in post-production now, right? We're in post-production, almost done. Last stages. Yeah, I can't wait We're to see it. Literally right now, my uh, director of photography is doing a live color session. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was a great experience, but a lot of work. And I wasn't wrong in that when you decide to direct, you have to dedicate a lot of time to that to that one project. I mean, it's yeah, it's now we filmed it in um, uh, July of last year. So it's a year now since our pre-production during a yeah pandemic so um but i i've always loved directors i've always had a great relationship with directors i love collaborating with them and i've always respected what you do i guess i could include myself in that now yeah come on what we do (laughs) we do (laughs) um but man do i have just a whole new found respect for directors and um every tiny little layer that you're in charge of and the decision-making from what does the fork look like to the green hue on the wall to, to every single role that every actor is playing to uh, to all of the dialogue, to every shot chosen to, to the props and all of those things, you know, I could really have to like manage and organize the time as well in the big picture. I mean, you really are the captain of the ship. Like you, you got to keep this. So you have all these great departments and, and hopefully you have great producers that are supporting you, but you got to keep laser focused on that, on that end goal. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't do what you guys do as actors. I'm way too easily embarrassed, (laughs) 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 but let's talk about both of you have had experience with long running shows and characters that you're familiar with in, in Mage in your case, it was Twin Peaks as well as Riverdale and other things. And for you, Brian, Charmed ran for like eight years or something. So tell me about what it's like with having a fan base like that, that, that is so active in something that continues week to week to week to week. Brian. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, you know, going to Comic-Cons and stuff and, and, you know, which has really opened up in the last five to 10 years um, for a way for us to actually meet fans. Uh, you know, before we'd get mail and maybe you'd get some of it. And it was, it was hard to really see or feel. Yeah, they would tell you Nielsen ratings or whatever, but I, I don't think it was until going to some of these shows and actually seeing people come to the table face to face and who these people are and why they watch and what it meant to them uh, that has really opened my eyes to, you know, what we all do film and television and, 
and why people watch to escape to you know um you know get away from their real life and you know it almost makes you feel a little bit like a doctor in a way a mental health doctor mm -hmm. that you're you're giving somebody you're a part of something for someone that you know wants to get away from their life whatever that is or, or right. be in something and uh, you know to know that I had people this last weekend, you know, I had this 10 year old girl come up. She's like, I've watched every episode like 17 times. And I love your show. And I'm like, you are a little young to watch this show. See, like, I'm like, so you were watching Just hold off this. on sleepwalkers for a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but she was watching this and instead of watching blues clues. Right. And she's like, yeah, that's what I am. And she had her little thing and she was kind of goth. And I was like, you know, but her whole family dynamic led to this and this show meant so much to who she is as a person. And, you know, and then there's her grandma and there's her mom and you get ages of people that watch. And uh, it's, it's amazing, you know, to be in reruns and, you know, I, we all grew up watching reruns, whether it be happy yeah. days or whatever it was. And, you know, to think that you're, you're on a rerun, you're a part of that, you know, three o'clock hour that people come home from school and, you know, watch your show. It's, it's, uh, it's something I never thought I'd be a part of. So, you know, it's, it's as much as we go from role to role and character to character, um, you know, Leo uh, is, is a constant. Uh, so I, you know, that's part of the challenge for me is like, you know, I'm constantly trying to do something that's not Leo and, yeah. You know, Holly from our show is like, just go with it. Be the nice guy. I'm like, no, I want to, I want to be evil. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's the thing too. Acting isn't playing a part. It's being a part, you know, it's putting you into that circumstance and right. bringing your own veracity into it. And that's, that's, that's what's so great about how everyone approached their roles in Sleepwalkers. So Majin, let's talk about Clovis. Sparks the cat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There were nine cats hired to play Clovis, each of them with a specialty. One would be cuddly, one would do this, one would hiss, one would swipe their paw. And none of the other cats ever worked. They were in their trailer while Sparks the Cat was, was doing everything. It. He's killing, killing it. Yeah. So <laughs> tell me about your relationship with Sparks, because the ending of the movie was not in the original script. It was a reshoot that we did because we didn't feel the ending was strong enough. The studio didn't, and, and I agreed, and we came up with something much stronger. But it suddenly goes full circle to this very emotional, heartfelt scene with you and Sparks the Cat. Yeah, and Clovis. Well, so when I when I got the film, and I well, when I was reading the script, I was like, oh, yeah, there's cats are a big part of this. So I'm not going to tell them that I'm really allergic to cats. I'm just <laughs> going to go I ahead. I did not know it. <laughs> I know. I know you didn't know because <laughs> I didn't tell you. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I was real. I was in, I was already had been filming a bunch. So you couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> and then I finally shared with you. So by the way, you know, those scenes where I'm with all those cats or with the reshoot. I'm really allergic to cats. So um, I think I took a lot of Benadryl to prepare oh, for that scene. Yeah. And, uh, and, but I mean, I love cats. It's just, unfortunately, I'm so allergic to them. You're still allergic. I, I used oh. to be, but I got over it. Um, How do you get over being allergic to cats? By having a cat for a while that, uh, that kind Oof. of changed things. I don't think I had it as badly as you did. Yeah, no, but, mine's uh, bad. 
and Stephen King must be allergic to them because he kills them all the time. In I know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So what was the most challenging scene in the film for you, Machen? Mm. Either physically or dramatically. Uh, the one that's, well, okay. So I would say two, but they're kind of the same sequence. Okay. I, th I thought that the way we had to film the, um, you know, in the cemetery doing the, Oh, the rape scene, the rubbings yeah. and the, and the, um, yeah. And then having to poke poor, uh, Charles's eye out with a corkscrew, the corkscrew. <laughs> cork it was yeah. just, you know, technically challenging. Very. And then yeah. the aftermath. For me too. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I, yeah. That was a very, very detailed, um, sequence, but then it was, in the car, you know, emotionally having to process what I had gone through and, and just having to be in that dark space. And at the same time, that was also the sequence that you had all of these amazing directors doing cameos. So <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to be like, Hey, hi, what's this? I wanted to ask all these questions and like hang out with them, but I had to keep myself in that like emotional space. So you really tortured me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm happy to oblige. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was really fun, but if you took that shot out and cut out all of those cameos and cut right in on the sheriff coming to you in the car, no one would have missed it except all the horror fans that, that loved going, hey, there's Stephen King. Look, that's Clive Parker. Oh, that's Toby Hooper. Yeah. That yep. was really fun. So Brian, what about for you? What was the most challenging part of it? I, I think it, that's right. That was a challenging sequence for sure. I, I, we spent, what did, two weeks? down in the park there i don't Something think it like was that. that long i think it was maybe a week it was it was which is long you know for yeah i mean movies Especially nowadays yeah, yeah we'd have done that yeah. in an hour like where we're we going to lunch all right <laughs> Ready. moving yeah, on a wonder and a tight close-up from some hand great yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know keeping that energy going the whole time uh for sure and then not being affected by you know that was interesting. I, I think physically, though, when I had the full prosthetic on, uh, I think it was towards the end of the movie in the house uh, where I'm I'm dying on the couch, and and it was it was the largest piece I had to wear, uh, which basically went from my waist up over my head and shoulders. Well, um, let's talk about that prosthetic process because you had to undergo that a lot. Machen, you were lucky enough to not have to have a face cast and latex yeah. covering you. Um, but um, Tony Gardner and his crew put it together and a lot of the makeup was on you, even though we had other people playing the Sleepwalker Cats and Nuno Sadi Jr., who was one of the stunt nice. guys. Um, there's close-ups of him in the halfway makeup that it's, it's him, not you, because we right. were busy with you. But tell me about how that, how trying that process was, or how uh, were, are you claustrophobic? I am, and and it's a, a distressing process to go through. I can be in small spaces, dark spaces, and you know maybe sometimes in water, but uh, definitely not with the makeup. You know, Tony, it was so amazing what he did with this prosthetic that when I put it on, my face moved with it, and it really helped. You know, a, a good makeup artist you know it's it's he's created the character for 
you know, now I can disappear in it. And, you know, I would, I remember I'd put it on and sit in the mirror and it was very freeing uh, that I could be, you know, this cat person, uh, you know, it, it would take, I forget how early we got there in the morning, but it, it'd be a couple hours to put it on and take it off. And, yeah. You would have uh, to be there a couple hours before call time, but it was so, it was so great. Um, I mean, it, it, you, it was kind of seamless. Right. And, and then as an actor, you know, to blend from the cheeks and still have my eyes available and, you know, I could still act uh, with people and, and yet, you know, you, you've become another character without having to do anything. Um, you know, this is where, this is where the makeup artist really is a part of the performance. Uh, and it was, you know, I, I, I enjoyed that immensely. And I, I, I remember meeting Ron Perlman uh, early in the process. Uh, and Ron comes in, he's like, how long did it take you? I'm like, oh, this one's like an hour and a half. He's like, ah, Beauty and the Beast every day for I don't know how many years. He's like, that's nothing, kid. And so I was talking to him about it. And, you know, he kind of, yeah, kind of like, like, you know, what do you have get to over complain it. about? He's, yeah, I did this for years, you know? And that kind of like made me go, okay, wow. And I had so much, I had watched his show and, you know, Ron, of course. And uh, it kind of was like, all right, this is, this is part of the process. And it was very new to me. I had never done any sort of makeup like that uh, but when I was in the full piece uh, we were on the set and the lights and the heat and I remember I overheated one night and got very claustrophobic and I forget who came up to me he's like you got this guy in a full makeup thing and he's not complaining and I'm like well, I, <laughs> like I'm dehydrated I don't know what's going on <laughs> okay I'll just put up with it and pass out like I don't know like, yeah sorry like, <laughs> you signed up for it that's it yeah don't so, die well, well let's talk about the dance scene the climactic <laughs> dance scene with the uh, poking in the eye and the like Majin you had to perform with somebody in a latex suit and and still <laughs> believe it and know it, even though off off camera, there's people operating remote control with his eyes blinking and ears yeah. moving and things like that. So tell me about that challenge, because that goes beyond mask play in acting class. Well, I think that part of it was pretty easy because there was something physically there that I could still pretend was was there. You know what I mean? So yeah. what was the most challenging of that of those shots was when I had to just look straight into camera. Yep. As if I was I was dancing. We put you on the dolly. Yeah, and, and that you were was actually hard. holding and you were actually holding uh the rail for the camera dolly and yeah. we were m moving and circling around pirouetting. Because I'm I'm definitely an actor that that feeds off other actors or my environment. I'll, I can, I can, I memorize really easily and I can memorize pretty well, but it really doesn't sink in until I'm actually on the set or with the actors. So if you've got the luxury of rehearsals, yeah. then it might get in there a little bit sooner. But a lot of times I'm flying by the seat of my pants on the set on that day. And so, um, because I very much like I really feed off my environment and other actors. So to that was really challenging for me performance wise. 
because I didn't have that physical thing. And I had to go into my imagination. And I just kind of, I remember that was one of the few moments that I, I felt silly and dumb with what I was doing. I was very embarrassed. <laughs> and do you re- happen very often? <laughs> do you remember we had a visitor to the set for a couple hours? That and of day? course, uh, during that scene, when I'm feeling like that, it oh was not goodness. an invited guest when Mr. Spielberg came over because there were two other movies that were shooting on the lot while we were doing Sleepwalkers. One was uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula with Francis Coppola directing, and the other was Hook with Steven Spielberg directing. And Steven was the first guy to ever give me a job as a writer and the second guy to hire me as a director. I had no idea he was coming over and he just wanted to sit and he sat there for two or three hours yeah. during the course of this. And, and of course, happened. I'm in my most like embarrassed state. I'm like, great. And now Spielberg's watching me. Great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, it but you was know, really actually fun. a funny thing about Bram Stoker's Dracula. So I was cast in that. Oh, as one of the uh, as one of the brides. Yeah, as um, uh, the redhead. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know who you mean. You know who I mean? I'm forgetting her name right now. Anyway, yeah. I was cast and um, I had gone in for Coppola a few times and, you know, always remembered me, always had great conversations and stuff. So finally I got cast and um, something was happening on a studio level. And I, you know, I don't want to say too much because you don't want to quote people in the wrong way, but there was right. a movement that happened within the studio and they were like, we need to cut out everybody but our two leads that don't have real accents. Oh. Because we need to surround them with people that have, that speak that way. <laughs> so, like Keanu Reeves, yeah. Yeah, and um, so, but, but my uh, dialect coach, um, she fought for me and she said, no, she's actually, she's got it down really good. Like she's one of the authentic ones, but oh, I, I still, I couldn't, I couldn't keep the job. So, oh, well, they let me go. At least you were on the same lot next door. <laughs> so then I think that's why, uh, that's why I was able to do sleepwalkers. So there you go. Which is great. So, so Brian, what was your reaction? The first time you saw the movie, was it at a screening or, or uh, yeah, we had a cast and crew screening. But did you see it before then? I'd love to know. I don't don't think I did see it before then. Uh, No, at the casting crew in North Hollywood or wherever it was there. Yeah. um, Yeah, I I don't think I had seen it beforehand. Uh, But after putting months of work into it, I'm I'm just curious to know what your feeling was when you saw the finished product on the screen. I mean, it's real. I still to this day don't like watching me um and <laughs> i you know it's it's very difficult and, and maybe you know you agree as an actor it's it's uh i watch a lot of movies and i get into it just like everybody else and you know when i watch myself up there i it's very hard to be immersed in the movie you know i'm, yeah, I'm watching me yourself. like oh my the way i delivered this line oh why my face is I, it's such a big face like what are you doing <laughs> you're overacting you're this is horrible. This you suck. Oh my gosh! Everybody in the movie theater is looking at you. You know, and I start getting having a panic attack. So it, it's it's very hard for me to enjoy it. And generally, I'll sit in the back row and escape so nobody's looking at me. Um, oh, you pay more attention to the audience than the screen. watching. You know, waiting for them to turn their head around and go, "That sucks." You know, or whatever. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was 
I was proud to have done it for sure. And all of it. And my friend was there with me and he loved it. And, you know, I, I don't think I had as an audience member able to enjoy the movie the way, you know, somebody who wasn't involved. Um, right. You know, I, I just thought I was very, I came across green and overacting, oh. and, you know, the whole thing. And that was uh, my job to make sure you weren't. That's my whole insecurity. And I still have it today. What are you going to do? <laughs> so Machen, you had said when you saw it for the first time, you were surprised by the humor of it and, yeah. and, and all that. So I'd love to hear just your overall reaction when you saw it. Well, yeah. I think I, I agree with Brian in that it's hard to, um, I love just getting lost in films too and television and then the magic of it. And the, and so that's why I don't ever want to see a behind the scenes now, unless I'm looking at it as a filmmaker and going yeah. like, oh, how did they execute that shot? Yeah. But, uh, you know, as an actual like moviegoer audience member, I don't know. I don't want to see you not have the accent or do <laughs> your little selfie for your social media yeah. or play, you know, like or play pranks. I don't want to see what salad you're eating. I want you to be that character that I've fallen in love with, you know, and I'm I'm buying into this world. So to watch it i think it's always hard when you've been so close to it because it always takes a while for me to forget the actual experience of filming it to be able right. to watch it a little more with a different perspective that's why i really enjoyed when we got together for one of the reunions at that theater on, oh the yeah Brea? The, yeah yeah the silent movie theater the silent movie theater yeah. that was so fun because it had been so many years of being separated from it to re-watch it's that much that many years later and it was and a pre-sold audience who already loved and embraced the yeah. movie coming back to enjoy it with us i enjoy, i enjoyed it for that screening more than i had had ever before like it was i was like oh my god this movie is so fun it is so fun <laughs> but it takes that long to separate yourself from the experience of it you know because i think like brian i'm like oh yeah why do i keep playing with my hair so much Get your hand out of your hair. What is wrong with you? Yeah, it was very nice hair. So. Was like, I was just like this all the time. Just like this all the time. I don't understand. Brushing it back. Um, well, we I just saw an article posted online. And because it's the 30th anniversary, a lot of people are giving attention to it again. But calling it Stephen King's weirdest movie. And, Ooh, and I love that. <laughs> it's a, a badge of honor as far as that's I'm that's right. Concerned. Yeah. But it is a weird movie. It's not like a studio horror film, and it's not like a teenage monster movie either. It it goes because it's Stephen King, there's a level of tongue-in-cheek, but but it takes itself seriously and just creates this new mythos of the sleepwalker, which yeah which we put in the titles, uh, the definition, which was an, a made up book that I made up <laughs> a quotation really? yeah. definition of the sleepwalkers. And so but, what was it like for you, Mick? Like just, just you, obviously you had the power of Stephen King, meaning, yeah. you know, it was, it was, he wrote it. He wrote it specifically for as a screenplay. Right. So there seems like there must've been a certain amount of, built in um I control maybe that you might have had or were you well I had an 800 pound game? I had an 800 pound gorilla on my team yeah. but this was the first time we'd ever worked together the first of which would become like seven or eight times but 
it was an original screenplay that they'd originally hired another director for, and that director completely rewrote it in a way that they were never going to be able to put King's name in the title. Mm. So they hired me. I have a lot of respect for King. I did before I met him and even more so since. Um, and my job as a writer director was to put back as much of, uh, as possible with what King would do. And then to talk to King about whatever changes the studio felt were necessary. And then he would do them and, and it would be amazing. But I felt an incredible amount of pressure to do the first original screenplay to be produced by a Stephen, uh, on a Stephen King script. So not only pressure from the studio, from the audience, but from Stephen King, we became friends and we worked together a lot after that, but I only met him uh, for the two hours he was there for that scene we were talking about in the graveyard. So to have that burden on my shoulders, it's my first studio picture and last as a director. Um, but there were a lot of pressures, but you don't notice, you get so involved, you know, as a director that everything is coming at you. Yeah. You're the covered wagon in the middle and all the Indians are coming and firing their arrows at you. But it's so great and so much fun and so exciting to be surrounded by creative people and encouraging to them to do their best work and, and creating a sense of enthusiasm about the project and getting, making it contagious that we're doing something really fun and special and that has the potential to reach an audience in a, in a personal way. Yeah. So, but the first time I saw it with an audience was opening night at the Chinese theater, 1200 seat theater sold out. And that dance between Brian and Alice that ends up with the last line is, oh, mother. And then they kiss passionately. 1200 teenage and 20 something people at the same time going, <laughs> and I thought, I think we're home. <laughs> so it, it's incredible. You know, you don't get that experience as much anymore because people are more drawn to television and streaming uh, on their personal screens, whether it's an 86 inch TV screen or their iPhone. Um, you don't get the shared experience nearly as much uh, other than the big franchise movies. And yeah. it's a shame because horror and comedy are best shared with an audience. They're contagious. And I don't, sure. I don't know if we, if we should, I don't know if we blame the audience for that, but I think it's also, I just went and, and first time back in the movie theater since the pandemic, I'm always such a supporter of the movie theater. I think yeah. it's such a beautiful yeah. experience. That's how we should be watching films. Um, but I have to say the ticket was incredibly high. Yeah. The, the, the concessions were ridiculous, like $25 yep. popcorn or something. ridiculous. What? Oh my God. And, and then I'm, and then we're sitting in the, the seats and it was, it was the bat, the bat, the Batman. Yeah. Movie. I just saw that too. Yeah. And yeah, but um, I bet you watch it on HBO max, right? <laughs> no, I well, went to the theater. Oh, good man. Yeah. Well, so, so we went to the theater, but, the the projection wasn't great the sound oh. wasn't great really and this is, yeah this is like it's a it's a good it's a major chain theater and so i was like batman was sort of yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um 
I ended up coming home and rewatching it on HBO Max with my good speakers and, you know, in the right lighting. And but I think we need to hold our theaters accountable as well. I think that we need absolutely we need then we need tickets to be more affordable for people. We need the concessions to not be so ridiculously high and bad food so we can get people back into the theater. It's a communal thing to do. And it could be it's so beautiful. It is. Um, and, you know, some of the theater chains are, are doing a subscription like AMC does a subscription where you pay 25 bucks a month and you can go to as many as three movies a week. So that's 12 movies in a month for 25 bucks. Yeah. And they have really great sound and projection and reclining chairs Yeah, doing everything they can to bring people back. But just as people were coming back to the theaters, the pandemic hit. And the pandemic and hit. I know. Yeah, so now it becomes these like, it becomes these big, uh, almost Disneyland events. They're only going to go see the huge blockbusters. Right. It's going to be a huge, you know, deal because they're plunking down so much money. They're like, okay, we're going to do this at Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, Fourth of July. But that's yeah. you know, you can't really, you can't really take a Marvel movies out. and Marvel you know, movies. It's yeah. an ex- it, they end up becoming an experience. In that in that different way, because because I think it's the pricing. I think we need to. Yeah. And and strangely, the streamers have taken up the slack on independent movies. There's so many of them that are available, but it's hard to know what what the ones are that are worth. And there's good. I mean, there is good content now on, you know, on those premium channels and things. So they're televisions better than it's ever been. Yeah. You know, technically yeah. and otherwise. Yeah. So, so Brian, who were the people who really inspired you? Who were the actors that really inspired you? Uh, you know, I watched who my mom watched, um, you know, it was a lot of, she was in love with Robert Redford. Uh, <laughs> so I have watched all his movies and I see I, a little Redford there. That, yeah. I was I blonde. It was, the, I was like, I wanted to be a cowboy. I've worked on these wrinkles really hard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I watched a lot of faulty towers growing up and, uh, you know, Basil was like the funniest, most incredible human being ever. Uh, <laughs> and John Ritter, uh, like I was really into the pratfall comedy uh, performance and I love comedy and uh, I, I honestly John Ritter was like one of my favorites growing up uh, the likable you know, guy who was really funny as well yeah. so yeah. funny uh, and you know and he was never he was he was still real in in a way you know as, as a sitcom goes it wasn't over the top stuff and I mean a lot of it was but it was it was kind of you know they played it somewhat real uh, but I, I think in the feature area it was always kind of redford eastwood uh for me and you know i loved the western yeah it's all about it i, I mean that's why i kind of did i stay in the sun you see they <laughs> <laughs> i'm just waiting to get a movie where i just go yeah <laughs> the uh, lines that's, and that's it that's all i say yeah. <laughs> yeah have you seen have you seen old henry yet no okay go see old old henry it's great and it's it's a it's a western uh-huh. Um, but it's really, it's, it's a simple story, uh, but it's beautifully shot and just so incredibly acted. It's very, it's, it's great. Awesome. Yeah. It down. Well, we have to run pretty soon, but Mitch and I wanted to ask you the same thing, not only actors, but filmmakers now that you are Google gobble, one of us. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I, well, you know, 
gosh, I cut my teeth on David Lynch. I mean, I was in, introduced yeah. into Hollywood by David Lynch. And what a great was, start. Yeah, what a great start. And um, on the one hand, I think he, I blame him for everything. Blame and credit him for everything <laughs> because he showed me the possibilities and how creative you can be and how you don't have to follow all of these rules that Hollywood and studios and money makers and everything say that you got to, you know, do this by 10 minutes and, you know, do this right. by this, have conflict. And um, he broke the rules. He broke all the rules. And I saw how delightful that was and how successful it could be. And how, and also how it's still not accepted. I mean, he still drives you know, the studios and the, and the money people crazy because <laughs> they can't control him. So on the one, so he's kind of like, he just sh shattered any, any confinement that I maybe would have ever had. So I know that anything's a possibility, which is great. But at the same time, he showed me these really interesting ways to go about stories. And a lot of times uh, other things don't, they don't live up to it. Cause I'm like, Oh, but you could push that so much farther. You know, I know you can, and it would work. Come on, guys, don't limit yourself, you know? Yeah. So um, that's a great rule of thumb to live by. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I've, <laughs> so as I've become a filmmaker, <clears throat> it's very hard for producers to tell me what to do. <laughs> because yeah. I always pull out the David Lynch card and go, really? Really? <laughs> Good uh, for you. Yeah. Well, I know Brian has to run to set pretty soon, but um, just one quick question for both of you. Brian, what is your strongest memory, good, bad, or indifferent about uh, Sleepwalkers 30 years after the fact? Uh, you know, for me, I it was a dream come true. I When I was coming through high school and acting class, I had said, I'm, I'm someday I'm going to star in a feature film, like studio film or whatever. And and then when that happened, uh, it was, you know, I had reached this goal so early. And, and that was for me, it's like, OK, Sleepwalkers is it. And, um, you know, I as 30 years later, <laughs> <laughs> hard to believe, uh, you know, you, you, the memories and the pictures <laughs> pop up in my head. And especially when it cons and people come up and, and talk about it. And, uh, you know, you know, you we already covered a few of the scenes that actually pop up, you know. Uh, meeting Tanya uh, in the first in the movie theater uh, down in the, the cemetery, uh, you know, the bedroom scene, uh, you know, you telling me to be comfortable and it's going to be OK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'll never forget. you. And you, it was. And it was. And, and one of the notes that you gave me of because uh, it was a movie I watched a lot growing up was uh, Werewolf in London that had this tongue-in-cheek horror comedy and and I'll never forget you know you telling me like this is kind of what we're going for and um you know I don't know if you told everybody but it was kind of you know a direction to me that you know this is this is kind of where we need to play it and uh, I just remember you being so kind and really you know being patient with me being so inexperienced and uh helping me guide me along and um, you know, I, I wasn't looking for that, forever. but I appreciate it. <laughs> no, not at all. But I, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I cherish a ton. Uh, and to everybody out there, you know, set a goal, work towards it and it happens. And, uh, I think sleepwalkers is kind of it for me in that way. 
And it's great to be able to maintain a friendship like this where we can get together, even though we don't see each other for years on end. When we do, like Mitch and I was lucky enough to work on your series, uh, The Witches of East End. I directed an episode and it was a fantastic reunion that felt like yeah. no time had passed. Yeah. So is there a memory that really <laughs> sticks for you when you think of Sleepwalkers? Well, I don't know what director you had, Brian, because <laughs> Mick was a nightmare for me. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, I had you to know, take it I, out on someone. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think for me with, with, I mean, I just, I just realized I'm, I'm, I was born in 1970. I started this business in 1987. I've, so I've been doing this for 35 years now. Wow. And um, this, that's a lot of projects and a lot of people that have come and gone and, and, you know, gypsies come together and we get really tight and, and great relationships. And then we all pack up and go to the next, you know, yeah. circus down the road. Yeah. yeah. A new circus family. So for me, a lot of times, I, a lot of times I don't remember a lot of the filming part of these projects. I always remember the actual connections with the people. And I really, really enjoyed working with Brian. I thought he was so sweet and it was so easy to film with him and it was so easy for us to have that like banter and and spark and charm and so that was absolutely you know what I take away from it was my experience with you Mick being so oh, kind and um and just enjoying Brian and I remember just being in awe of Alice yeah uh because she just was like gosh she was badass she was beautiful <laughs> she was hot she was strong she was good you know, like yeah, it was great as as being a, a young and new in the business to be able to to look at that woman and go, oh, yeah, I want to come on the stage like that, that, too. I'll get yeah. there one day. I'll get there one day. But yeah, um, yeah my, my memories are just the experiences and the and the, the good friendships that you make with people. Well, the two of you made filming that movie so pleasurable and so much fun to come to work every day on a movie that wasn't easy to make, but then yeah. none of them are. Yeah. But I, I really want to thank you for sharing our little anniversary tribute to Sleepwalkers 30 years later and uh, for sharing it on Postmortem. So thanks. And it's so great to see both of you. Thank you. Great to see you both it's as well. Good to see you guys too. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.